0: So we are continuing our series through Numbers, which is a part of the larger series that we're doing out of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, and it really contains the foundational stories and instructions that God gave to the nation of Israel. And so we know that God has been promising since the early chapters of Genesis for his people, the people of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, became the nation of Israel, that they would receive this land. And so uh, we have been working. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, now we get halfway to the book of Numbers. And um, they, they have been, um, they left Mount Sinai. And now they're traveling to the land. Um, and they come to what is the most devastating event to that point. So Tanner read the passage where they, they come to the, to the edge of the land, they send some spies out into the land, and the spies came back, so there are 12 spies were sent, and of the 12 spies that were sent, 10 of them came back and said, it is impossible for us to enter into this land. The people are too big, the walls are too strong, their armies are too great, there's no way we can conquer these, these people. And so it's, it's, and then God says, I've had it with you. <laughs> I've had it with this. You're not going into the land, this generation. Um, you're going to wander around for another 38 years in the same area that you have been. Um, and your kids will go into the land. And so it's really the most devastating event to this point. So, you know, it's, it's I think it's helpful for us to kind of imagine, okay, they've been at this for um, two years and two months. And they've gone through a lot. All of the hardships under Pharaoh, which would have been lasting, you know, probably four or five generations of people. Slavery under Pharaoh, harsh treatment, their kids are being killed. So all of that hardship for for generations. Um, And then this generation experience experiences the plagues now they didn't get hit with the plagues like egypt did but they were affected by some of them and even if it was just completely outside of your camp and it was all just being taken place within the nation of egypt the plagues it still would have been a terrifying thing especially passover are your kids really going to survive that night when the angel of death came through and killed all of the firstborn of Egypt. Is really the blood on these doorposts going to cover our kids? So I would imagine that that would have been an anxious night. So then they travel in the desert for several days, and the armies of Egypt are behind them. And then they get to the Red Sea. The Red Sea is at their back. The armies of Pharaoh are in front of them. And they, you know, th- that was one of the moments where they really freaked out. Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? We're going to die here in the desert at the Red Sea by Pharaoh's armies. So God conquers Pharaoh's armies at the, at the Red Sea, as we all know, and they sing a big song, and have a big celebration, but then they, then they start traveling through the desert to go to the Promised Land. On their way, they stop at Mount Sinai, but all along the way, they're grumbling and complaining because they're hungry and they're thirsty. It's legitimate concerns and needs, but in each instance, they grumbled to God and they tested him. Well, they get to Mount Sinai, um, and God comes down onto the mountain, and there are thunderstorms, there is lightning, there is smoke, the clouds are dark. And so, again, another frightful experience, so frightful that they pull back from actually meeting God. So then they, again, wait around for another... Four or five weeks until Moses comes back down. So they're, here they are, there's this large group of people, a million plus people. And they're just sitting there. It's not like they have crops. So I'm sure they got bored and they were like, where is Moses? What do we?" And then they have the golden calf incident where several thousand of the people get killed because of their unfaithfulness, their idolatry, and their sexual revelry uh, at the foot of the mountain while Moses was up there. So then they get instructions for building the tabernacle. They build this massive tabernacle, and they see God's presence come down into the tabernacle. They receive hundreds of laws that lead to blessing or judgment. They've already experienced judgment. So now they have all of these laws, and they're conditional. And and they know that God is swift to bring down judgment if they don't fulfill and obey these, these laws. And so I think that over the course of these two years, they're in a place where they're very um, anxious, fearful, guilty. They engage in several wars throughout the time, which would have been scary. I mean, none of us, very few of us, if we have not, unless we've been, you know, join the army and go overseas. We haven't been in any wars, but these people engaged in several wars throughout this time. Are we going to live? Are our kids going to live? And then they come to the edge of the promised land and then they're forbidden to enter. So two years and two months, a lot of turmoil, a lot of anxiety, a lot of just stress and pain, hunger, thirst, all of these challenges. And now they have another 38 years of it. But this is not what Israel wailed and cried about. They cried and wept, about their circumstances. And so they got to the edge of the land, the spies were sent out, the spies returned, and they got this news. There's no way we can take over this people. So it says that they, they cried and wept about their circumstances. They cried and wept that night. So it seems like that first night they got this news, These 26 months of, of trial so they're crying, they're weeping. I imagine they felt sad and dejected that first night. I think that's what was going on, just depressed, despairing. But in the morning, in the morning they're angry, and they're bitter, and they regret. And I know all of us have these kinds of experiences. We have we have a huge setback, and at first, you know, we're really down. But then we start thinking about it. Who can I blame? Whose fault is this? We're going we're to do what we need to do to resolve this. And so this sadness, this despair, this rejection turns into anger, bitterness, and regret. And the first thing that they do that next morning is they lash out against God, they lash out against Moses, and they lash out against Aaron, you should have left us in Egypt. We're, gonna, we're just going to die out here in the wilderness, or we're going to get killed by all these armies. You should have just left us. Actually, why don't we elect a new leader to take us back to Egypt? And you got to remember, Egypt is devastated. There's nothing left in Egypt, at least for another season or two. There's no food. There's no army. There's no government. But anyway, they start a campaign to elect a new leader. Well... At that point, God had had enough. And he says this. It's a really critical paragraph in the Pentateuch. As I live, and this is a, 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 just this phrase, I don't even understand why this phrase is inserted in here. He says, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. There, There is a time, and I think it's in here because God is looking towards this event when the glory of the Lord shall fill all the earth. And we read about it in Revelation. And it's still this, this time ahead that God is looking forward to where the glory of the Lord fills the earth. and says, the light from the Father and the light from the Son fill the earth and there is no need for the sun or moon any longer. So that's what this, this phrase is envisioning. As I live and as all of the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. And so this number ten, there's ten tests, and so... um, I believe that these ten tests form the central plot for the books of Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus because all of the narrative is really organized around these ten tests. The ten tests, uh, Exodus 13, unbelief at the Red Sea. They didn't believe God would protect them from Pharaoh's army, so they grumbled and complained. Should have left us in Egypt rather than to die out here. Number two, the water at Marah. All these places where they grumble about food and water get a name. They get a name. They were thirsty and they grumbled against God. In Exodus 16. They grumbled because they didn't know where their food was going to come from. Another example out of Exodus 16. They violated the Sabbath, which is a concern about their future food. Remember, God said, I'm going to provide you food, collect it on six days, but don't collect it on the seventh. I want you to enjoy what I am blessing you with, rest, don't work. I'll, have, I'll provide enough for you to eat. But people didn't believe, so they go out on day seven to, to collect. There's none there. So they disobeyed God, not believing that he would provide. Number five, again, another issue with water. They call it Rephidim. Number six was the idolatry, the golden calf. Here, O Israel, is the God who delivered you from Egypt and all of the sexual immorality that surrounded that. Number seven, uh, there was a complaint in the camp. It says they just were grumbling about all of their misfortunes. And so they just woke up one day like, oh, man, this life is just really bad. Look at all the stuff we're having to go through. Again, grumbling against God. We can see ourselves in all of these, obviously. Uh, the eighth one, they were complaining about not having meat. And they go into this long description about all of the things that they enjoyed in Egypt, the leeks and the onions and fish and meat pots and all these very long complaint against their food. And then um, Moses, excuse me, Miriam, Moses' sister, and Aaron, Moses' brother, complain and grumble against God saying, Who, why is Moses the only leader? So they were leading a revolt against Moses and his own family. And then finally, this is the 10th test. Fear of the land's inhabitants. God really isn't going to protect us if we go in. This land isn't really going to be ours. And there's this concluding verse, and the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all of the signs that I have done among them? So there's two key words here, despise and believe. So despise is to reject, it is to treat disrespectfully, it is to treat irreverently. And so they thought little of God. They thought little of God, but they thought little of God because they didn't believe God. To believe is to put your trust in something as reliable. All right, it's, it's you're, you are willing to entrust your, your life to it. Okay, that's what it means to believe. I want to look at today, <clears throat> you know, we looked at the beginning of these, of these tests when we were in Exodus, and now we've seen the conclusion of them. And we talked about faith versus law in that earlier sermon. Today I, I want to do a, a deeper dive into what it means to have faith. What does it mean to have faith? And so there are a few things that I want to look at here. First of all, faith is different than knowing. Faith is different than knowledge. Knowing something is true is different than believing something is true. Knowing something is reliable is different than believing that something is reliable. And oftentimes we think that because we know something, then we believe it. We can call it to mind. Oh, I believe it. I know it. But they are very distinct things. And let me give you an example here from from my own life that's really practical. So I am restaining the cedar siding on my house. There's a lot of it. And it goes all the way up to the third story. All right, so um, I am very frightened of heights when I am on unstable surfaces, all right? Um, if I have a nightmare, I'm falling somewhere, okay? I watch those Mission Impossible movies where where Tom Cruise is hanging upside down on a, on a mountain, and I, I mean, right now, my feet and my hands are sweating, even just talking about it, all right? That's who I am. So, but I've got to do this project, and my guess is it's probably going to cost me somewhere between ten and twenty thousand dollars to hire somebody to do it, which is, I can't afford. And I know I can do the work if I can just get over the fear of heights. So I'm going to borrow scaffolding from Stacy. So Stacy's got scaffolding, and so Stacy and Rebecca and Anna, his two daughters, they came over to set it up a couple weeks ago, and. Uh, You have to set up these sections each section is five foot tall and you just keep stacking them on and and uh so i'm watching stacy and his two daughters and and they're just like monkeys on this thing you know (laughs) and it's pretty impressive and it's heavy and um so they needed my help because i'm just kind of an observer (laughs) watching this scaffolding get erected but they needed my help so i had to go up to the second level which is about 12 feet off the ground i mean it took so much for me to jump off the 10-foot high dive when I was when I was younger. It, so I had to climb up to this second section section, so 12 feet off the ground and I am terrified, okay? <laughs> now there's a ladder, it's stable. I can see it, all right? I can see it holding up these three people. I know that it's made out of steel and that this this set of scaffolding has been used for years and lots and lots of times, but I'm terrified. All right? Um, so I know it's safe, and I can see that it's safe, but can I believe that it's safe for me? It's very different. Very different for me to take that step and to start climbing. And Stacy's like, George, just remember three points. Two feet and one hand, or two hands and one foot at all times. Just keep three points on there. And I said, Stacy, can you bring over your harness so I can use it too, so I can maybe have four or five points at the same time? So... <laughs> Which he did, he dropped it off that following week. Um, So then I look up, and I'm sitting on this second level, frightened to do anything more, and Stacy's on the fourth. So he's 22 feet off the ground, directly level with my third story. And I'm just like, okay, I've got to go up there at some point to do this work. And so I I climb up. I climb up, and I just sit down on on that top level. And there's railings, and there's all kinds of you know, it's very safe. Um, So I go up there. And then uh, last Friday, Taylor Vollmer came over for a few hours, and uh, I actually stood up on that thing, power, acid washed the siding, power washed it, and eventually got the work done. And then Friday, I actually stained that, that top section. Now, I got the harness on, it's clipped on, I'm always holding on, I'm stretching, but not too far, because it's still scary. It's still scary. So I know the scaffolding was safe, I saw that the scaffolding was safe, but it took a step of believing for me, believing for me that it was going to be safe. And that took faith, that's, and that's the difference between knowing and Believing. So Israel Israel had seen God defeat Pharaoh's armies. Israel had experienced God bringing victory for them over other armies. They had seen God provide, but they got to this moment. You know, I, if, I'm, if I'll continue with the scaffolding metaphor, like if you had to add a fifth section or a sixth, I don't know if I could do it or not. I don't know if my faith was strong. There's something about this instant where Israel said, no, this is too much. We can't do it. So that's the first thing. Believing in God is different from knowing about God. Oh, and, and, well, I don't want to get to my third point here. I just... Don't want to skip fun. Second thing, faith is based upon promises. There are specific things that we believe about God. When we say that we believe about God, we just don't have this general belief in God. Okay, what is it about God that you believe? You know, God had given them very specific promises. I'm gonna provide for you a land flowing with milk and honey. I will go before you and defeat all of your enemies. And he had proven himself. So there's promises and there's fulfilled promises. You know, when you get a set of scaffolding, they've gone through testing and certification, so they come inherently with a set of promises. These will hold you up if you climb up them. Limit of 250 pounds per platform. All right? So you stick within the promises and they do their job. So there's promises, specific promises, that God makes for his people. Not just ambiguous things. You know, if we don't know those promises... We're never going to act on his commands, because we don't know what God said he would do, and so we don't know if we can step out in faith or not to, to follow them. So we have to know what he's promised, which is why it's important that we meditate on the law of God day and night, like the psalmist said, and like Joshua will say, and when we, I don't know if we're going to get to the book of Joshua or not in this, after we're done with this series, But it's important for us to meditate on the word of, when I say the law of God, the five books of Moses, God's instruction, God's teaching, that word law is broad and covers all those ideas. If we're not meditating and bringing to mind, because we are a forgetful people, if we're not meditating and bringing to mind what God has promised for us, we're not going to know him enough to follow through. Additionally, faith requires a response of obedience. He says, they did not believe me and obey my voice. All right? We can't put obeying God's voice before believing God's voice. Faith leads to obedience. Knowing God and then believing in God What his promises are then leads to obedience. Grace always comes before obedience. We don't don't earn God's favor through obedience. We have have God's favor. Israel didn't do anything to earn God's favor. Israel didn't do anything to become God's chosen people that he was going to use to show his grace and mercy and truth to the rest of the world, to be a, a nation of righteousness. Israel did nothing. Israel had God's favor. They didn't believe in God's favor, which is why they disobeyed, you see. See, obedience is the connection between God and his commandments and, and, and us and our faith. And we can't pick and choose the commandments, right? Some of us, some of us agree with some biblical teachings on things, and then disagree with some biblical teachings on others. And what essentially what we're saying is, I trust God in these areas that I agree with him on, and I don't trust God on these areas that I don't agree with him on. And it's essentially choosing, picking and choosing the, the idols that you want to serve. And, and it really just highlights where you're lacking knowledge of God, knowledge of his promises, and, and faith in that, in that God will provide in those contexts. And then, like, again, on the scaffolding metaphor, at some point, I had to climb that scaffolding. I had to believe that it would hold me first. But in that belief, I then had to climb it. And the climbing of it showed my faith. And then this is the entire book of, book of James. If you don't have obedience, you really don't have faith. Because the faith is showing that you're willing to put your trust in God. And the fifth thing, it requires cultivating and strengthening. Faith requires cultivating and strengthening. You know, at, at, at again, this At first, when I got up to that second level of scaffolding, I just sat there and I was terrified. But after some time, I felt like, you know, I can climb up another two sections and be with Stacy. And then after I had done that, I knew that I could go out. So that following Friday, I went out, and climbed all the way to the top right away. And after some time, a few hours up there, much more comfortable. My faith in the scaffolding was growing. I could do more, and I didn't feel terrified. Amen. Yeah. Amen. And our faith is like that. It's based, we have past experiences that we know. God has been, he's proved his faithfulness. His promises came true. I Amen. obeyed, and he brought life to my life. Amen. That's, and, and as we grow older and wiser in the Lord, we learn and know his word more. We grow in our understanding our faith continues to grow because our obedience continues to grow. Let me give you some sample commands, just four simple commands that, I sh- uh, for, that we're all very familiar with, I'm sure. Things that God wants us to do. And I want to connect the command to faith and why faith is needed to fulfill the command. So let's, you know, God tells us at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 of Ephesians, forgive everyone, for God through Christ has forgiven you. Do not be bitter, right? I and mean, that's the end instruction there in Ephesians 4. Well, why is it that we hold on to anger against other people? So anger is a source of power, makes us feel strong, we feel protected against people that have abused us, maybe emotional abuse, physical abuse and so anger and bitterness actually helps us kind of put up a wall to protect us from further abuse because if we don't forgive somebody there's no way we're going to begin to enter into some any sort of redemptive or reconciliatory relationship with them right? So anger is a strength. the bitterness is a sen- it gives us a sense of strength. Well God tells us to forgive as Christ as God is through Christ has forgiven us. And so we don't believe that God through Christ will provide for us the power that we need to be strong against somebody that's abused us or hurt us in some way. That takes emotional strength to forgive somebody because it's going to, once again, Make you vulnerable. Because you've got to let go of your anger. And if you let go of your anger, what power are you going to use against this person that's hurt you? Well, Jesus says that he will provide you with the emotional strength to endure the relationship with that person. Now, forgiving is different than trusting. We're not, we're not called to entrust ourselves to people. We're called to forgive. We entrust ourselves to Jesus. And if there's a circumstance or a relationship or situation that is, is hurtful to us, we need, a, we need to distance ourselves from it. But we can't use anger to continue to protect us against the vulnerability of not having the power of of anger. This, I mean, obviously, <clears throat> that's a that's a that's a subject where you could explore for hours, and in a counseling context, may need to really work through a number of issues and have a number of conversations to get to some of those kinds of things. But that's just a brief a brief uh, snapshot of of us holding on to the power of anger and bitterness rather than believing that God, through the power of Jesus Christ and the Spirit within us, can give us the power to endure. The second one, sexual immorality. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, we are commanded to refrain from sexual immorality. Well, what's what's faith got to do with sexual immorality? Well, he actually says that um, we are driven by deceitful desires... And in expressing sexual immorality, which is engaging in any sort of sexual activity outside of a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife, is that we are um, relieving ourselves from what is called the suffering of lust. I uses the word the passion of lust, but the, literally the word means the suffering of lust. So when we are being deceived, or our flesh has produced desires in us and temptations within us. That the temptations are going to come, right? Not just temptations to sexual immorality. We are always experiencing temptations. Jesus experienced temptations, right? The reality of temptations is a given. You're not evil if you're tempted, and if you're in Christ, you're not <laughs> evil if you fail. We are, if we're in Christ, we're righteous, but we commit acts of sexual immorality when we give into the temptation, when we give into the temptation. And what we're doing is we are comforting ourselves through sexual immorality. We are relieving ourselves of the suffering that lust creates. And so where, where does faith come in? Well, at the end of the passage, he says, if you reject this teaching, you also reject the spirit that has been given you. Well, the Spirit has been put into us. If we, are, if we have believed in Jesus Christ, the Spirit has been given to us as the seal of our redemption. The Spirit of Jesus Christ is living in us. All right? That Spirit brings life to our physical bodies, it brings life to our emotional selves, it brings life to our mental selves. Our thoughts, our feelings, our bodies, the Spirit is empowering. I mean, the, the, the teachings are clear throughout Scripture, that that's what the Spirit is doing. Romans chapter 8 especially. Our thoughts, our feelings, our bodies. The Spirit affects. If we reject the teaching, we reject the Spirit. If we accept the teaching, what we're doing is we're believing, okay, these urges are strong, but I believe that the Holy Spirit, who has power over my thoughts, my feelings, and my body, can provide the comfort that is needed so I don't engage in sexual immorality. You see how that faith is Now, that's a lot of stuff to know. Do you know how the Holy Spirit works to bring comfort? Not just for temptations to sexual immorality, but all temptations, okay? If we don't know those promises, we're not going to be able to act on them. Number three, anxiety. Who doesn't struggle with anxiety and fear? So Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, do not be anxious. And then Jesus said the same thing. Don't worry. What are you worried about? God knows. Paul says, God is near. Do you believe God is near? Do you believe that the spirit of Jesus Christ lives in you? And he says, if you're feeling anxious, again, anxiety, you're gonna, we all experience It doesn't mean we're evil if we experience anxiety. What do we do with it? Do we continue to let anxiety rule our lives, or do we believe that God's got something for us in the midst of anxiety? But oftentimes we think that that, uh, it just seems trite. God's, okay, because he says, make your requests. What requests? Whatever requests you need to make to overcome your anxiety, what is it that you're worried and anxious about? All right, ask him to bring relief to those things that bring you anxiety. Make your requests known through prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. Don't forget about the thanksgiving, because God's done things in your life. Give him thanks for those things. And if you have a long history of praying about your anxieties, you have a long history of things to be thankful for. So make your requests, but also give thanks. And it says this, God will guard your hearts and minds. How does he guard our hearts and minds? Again, the spirit that lives in those who have believed in Jesus Christ has power over our thoughts, our feelings, and our bodies. Our hearts are where our desires and our feelings are coming from. Our our thoughts is where our minds. He says, I will guard your hearts, your desires, your feelings. I will guard your minds, your thoughts. With an understanding that, with a peace that is beyond understanding, which is that knowledge. We can know about it, but to experience it is something, a whole, that's a whole different thing, and it comes through faith. If you don't believe that God can do that and that God will do that, you're never going to obey God and actually take some time, sit down, think through what's causing your anxiety, and start praying about those things. I put this into practice my freshman year of college. Actually, it was my senior year of high school, junior and senior year of high school. I was anxious about things. And you got, a lot of you guys know Shane. And I said, Shane, what do I do about this stuff? He said, George, you've got to start praying. I started praying, and I saw that it worked. Alicia asked me just about anxiety over a couple weeks ago. And I said, Alicia, this is a common thing that all of us deal with. I said, I I just had to get to a point in my life where I was going to devote myself to consistently praying for those things. I said, since I've done that and when I do that, there is a peace that overwhelms me. Now, we all, again, the anxieties come up. So what do we do? I had some things come up this weekend. I just had to take a I just had to stop what I was doing. I went aside for a few minutes, found a quiet place, and just went through the things and put my put just laid it out before God. God, here are the things that I'm feeling anxious about. After I got done, I felt peace. Now, it doesn't always happen that quick. Right? But I can tell you. That over time, if you develop that habit and don't believe that these are just trite commands, but that God through the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, all right, no human has ever demonstrated the power to raise another human from the dead. So there is no greater power than the power of God in raising humans from the dead. That same power lives in you. And Paul's prayer at the end of Ephesians chapter 1 says may you know the power of the Spirit that is at work in you the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. If you don't know that power you're not going to trust that power, you're not going to obey God to overcome your anxiety you're going to suffer anxiety for the rest of your life. The last one, giving. God tells us to give to, to gospel expansion to leaders of the church, to the poor, to help people. He says to be generous Give of your first fruits, which means you don't wait till the end of the month when everything is gone and you just give a little, maybe none because you don't have any. You give of the first fruits because giving of your first fruits requires you to depend upon the Lord to continue to provide. Right? We give sacrificially, which means it's going to hurt. I'm going to have to give up something. I'm going to have to give up something. Do I want to give that up? Yes or no? Do I, do I give generously? Which means that it's an abundance. And then with joy. With the promise that God will continue to provide for you and your needs forever. That's the promise of God. And bring joy to your life through your sacrificial, generous giving of your first fruits. Because we think that we're going to be happy by consuming and spending and collecting. And God says, for those of you who have material wealth, enjoy it and be ready to share generously. So he's not saying become poor. He's saying give and share generously to these things I've called you to give to and enjoy what you have. And then God brings joy. What is Solomon notices in, in, his, in his worldview book of Ecclesiastes, what he notices is a lot of wealthy people that don't follow God's commands about their wealth, and they're not happy. So again, do we believe that God can bring us happiness and provide for all of our needs by following his commands? Do we believe that God can actually do this? So those are just four simple examples. But every command of God... Throughout the Bible, has something to do about God, His character, and His nature and His promises that will turn out life for us. Again, we're not like, we're not unlike the Israelites. We have painful and emotionally challenging and physically challenging circumstances. And sometimes it does indeed seem trite to believe in God that he can actually overcome the circumstances that we're in. But I think that we also doubt because we also feel guilty about our pasts. And I think that that's probably one of the things that were affecting the Israelites at this moment. Because, again, they they could look back over the couple years and see where they were not believing and not obeying and not, not trusting in the Lord. And it seems like it seems like some of that guilt was affected. You know, we've, we haven't been 100% faithful to God. Is he, re- he, could, he could let us go when we get into that land and let those armies destroy us. We're not, we're not sure we're good enough to go in and take that land. We're not sure God is going to love us enough because we've really, we have, I don't know, but it seems to have some effect. And it'd be consistent with, you know, why they pulled back at Mount Sinai. Uh, we, don't, we don't really want to meet God. He's going to destroy us. Well, God just said that he wanted to meet you. So that fear, I think, does play an effect, and the guilt. Well, luckily, the plan of God wasn't over with Israel's unfaithfulness, But it wasn't because the next generation was any better or the following generation. In fact, you just continue to read through the rest of the Old Testament, and Israel never has a great generation. (laughs) Never. The best generation was David's, and David was um, guilty of adultery and then murdering people to cover the adultery. That's the king of Israel. And so there's never a great generation, but there is one faithful Israelite. That faithful Israelite was Jesus Christ, who came to a point where he was facing death and wept bitterly, the text says. He knew that he was facing death. He knew that he had to die. He knew that he was facing a break from God. He knew God was going to forsake him. So this closeness and this tie that he had felt with God, he knew he was going to lose and that he was going to suffer a very, very painful physical death. He also knew... That God was going to raise him. He knew the text. He knew the scriptures. He'd been telling his disciples, God's going to raise me in three days. He himself had raised people through the power of the Holy Spirit that God had given him. But could he go through with it? And you guys, Jesus got to the point of stress and anxiety that he sweat blood, which I looked it up. It's an actual medical condition. It's really rare but you can experience such great amount of stress that you sweat blood. That was Jesus. But he pressed on even to the point of death. God was faithful. God was faithful and raised him from the dead. And this is, this is the ultimate basis of our faith The scriptures teach. If we don't believe that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead by the Spirit of God, then our faith is worthless. Because this is the ultimate promise. God's promise from Genesis chapter 3. I, woman will give birth to a child who will overcome death. And that promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And there's two things that that does for us. One, well three things. It shows us that God himself was so full of love for us that he was willing to die. That changes our hearts. If we really think about it, that really changes our hearts if we let the fullness of our sin have its effect and recognize that we are deserving of death, but that Christ took it for us. So that, that helps change our hearts. But it also provides forgiveness of sins. And that means that God no longer deals with us according to our sins. Romans chapter 4, blessed is the, which is a quote from Psalms, blessed is the man whose sins the Lord no longer takes into account Which means his dealings with us are not determined by the sins that we commit. So if we were Israel there at the promised land and we knew Jesus Christ had forgiven us, okay, you guys, we have been unfaithful, but going into this land, it's all of God's promises and none of our guilt. We can go forward. He's not dealing with us according to these past failures. That's where we're at. God is not dealing with us according to our past failures anymore. You got to get that through your minds. We have to get that through our minds. But the third thing it does, we've already discussed this, is that God has put the spirit of that faithful Israelite Jesus Christ into us. And we're actually, Romans actually teaches that our faith is in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's faithfulness becomes our faithfulness. Jesus did it, Jesus was put inside of us. We can do it, not because of our own power, but because of Jesus Christ, what he's gone before and done, because he's forgiven us of our sins, because he's given us the Holy Spirit, because he's changed our hearts through love. There's no reason to doubt God, but we will, but we will. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for for the gift of faith. Indeed, it is a a gift. Thank you for the promises that you've given to us. Lord, we pray that as a church, you would strengthen us to go forward in faith. Help us to step out on your promises, even the ones we, we really do not want to, the commands we don't want to obey, because we see them as such a great challenge. God, help us to step into places of faith and to experience the life that you have for us, especially as you call us into this world that is increasingly hostile to us. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.